This is The Verse, a weekly dive into the cinematic universes and beyond. We'll dissect the latest episodes, films, and news all fans from veterans to news are dying to know more about. Now, here's our team of pop culture superheroes we call The Verse Squad. Welcome to The Verse. Welcome back to The Verse, the podcast that must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Okay, what spice is this guy smoking? This episode, we are going to cover Denny Villeneuve's long-awaited epic, Dune. But before we do, let's meet the team. I'm Lucas. I'm Bridget. I'm Norm. I'm Cronsworth. I said, I'm Cronsworth. Psst, Emilia, your turn. Come on, this is where you say, the verse, news. What the hell is taking so long? Emilia, don't you dare tell me you have stage fright. I didn't want to have to do this, but where are my players? Chuck Cronsworth, freaking psychobot. Emily is not here. She did leave a note. To my dear, dear squad. And Cronsworth. Figures. Sorry for missing the Dune episode. I was called to Earth on a mission. I had to make like a meteor and rock. Of course, a crummy pun. I will be back soon. Until then... Kick Cronsworth for me. Wait a minute. I got this covered. Ouch! Right in the oil can. Oops. I think this actually says Kiss Cronsworth. Well, sure, that sounds more appropriate. Nope. Wrong again. It was Kick. Not again. Ouch! Oh no, I'm slipping. Whoa! Oh no! Our table! It's broken! Look what you've done, Lucas. While Cronsworth repairs our table, who wants to jump right into Dune? Yeah, I think so, because the end of this note says, P.S. Stay off my turf and do not do the news this week. All right. All right. Duly noted. Duly noted. Okay, carry on with Dune while I don't fix this table. Lucas? Dune is a deep and complex story set more than 10,000 years in the future, when humans can travel through space by using a drug called spice melange, that can only be found on one planet, Arrakis, or better known as Dune. The story follows Paul, a young prince of House Atreides, whose family is tasked by the Emperor to take over spice production on Arrakis. Paul's father, Duke Leto, thinks it is a trap, but is sure he can outsmart his enemies, the hated and feared Harkonnens, led by the bald, obese, and cunning Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Arrakis is a deadly place, a desert planet where nothing can grow, and the arid wasteland is ruled by enormous creatures called sandworms that destroy everything in their path. So what did everybody think of Dune Part 1? Well, I, I saw that a Part 2 is coming out before Part 1 is even finished, so uh, I was like, I was like, is this really how this movie is ending? And then I was like, oh, it's okay, there's going to be another part. <laughs> And for context, you've never seen the 1984 Dune? You never read um, the books? No, so this was, this was my absolute first Cold Stone introduction to Dune. And I'm just going to say this right off the top. Was this Star Wars question mark? Because <laughs> um, honestly, the whole time, and I mean the absolute two, full two hours and 35 minutes watching this, I cannot help but think... I was in a Star Wars universe. 
Okay. But but it's but but sort of but just like the plot lines. It was like mm-hmm. the plot was I've I've seen and heard every single plot line that was possibly coming across the screen, and it was all from Star Wars. Or maybe Star Wars is from Dune. I don't know. Again. Well, considering Dune was written in 1965 and Star Wars oh. was written in 1978, Ooh. which one do you perceive to have came first? Uh, definitely Dune. Yeah, but the thing is, everybody steals from everybody. Well, the plot line versus Star Wars. Now, listen, I love and adore Star Wars. Everyone knows this. But mm-hmm. this plot line just seemed a little more cohesive and it made more sense. Uh in many ways, like it seemed like a more dramatic and sophisticated version of Star Wars. That's Huzzah! my first take. That's my hot take. There we go. And I never thought I'd say that, but yet here I am. It's not really a hot take. You have just taken your first step into a larger world. Welcome to the Duneverse. You're all, well, I'm we're glad all, to be here. You're always welcome. I'm glad um, to be here. <laughs> a lot of Star Wars fans get into, you know, fall their, find their way to Dune and then get really immersed in it because it's an, a spectacular universe. Right. I can see so, why. Yeah. so, Bridget, as you can probably already tell, Lucas has definitely read the books. He's read the oh, books, definitely. and much like me, he's seen the David Lynch version that came out in the 80s. Oh, I mean, I got to tell you, he's beaming from ear to ear right now. He really yeah. is. Yes, <laughs> got Bridget into the Dune side. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is, though, the Dune universe is so dense, and even in the first novel, like, everything you feel like, what the hell, I got thrown into this thing? Like, I barely know what the heck's going on. That's every person who's ever experienced Dune, because you get thrown into this universe, and there's... You know, so much of the novel is exposition. It's like telling you what is happening in this setting because he invented this intricate world with like research, you know, the natural world. Uh, A little background on the story of Dune. Frank Herbert was in Oregon, where that's where I was living for many years, uh, in eastern Oregon, which I fell in love with in the desert. And that's when he came up with this idea for Dune. And it really is about less about how, you know, technology, uh, you know, shapes humans or whatever. It was more about how humans shape the environment with our technology. And one of the things that I think is most fascinating about this universe is the, is the concept that computers don't exist. Did you, like, pick up on that while watching it? How, yes. The, you know, be, because of pe- humans were enslaved to technology, although in some ways people are, interpret that as, um, you know, it wasn't that we were, like, repressed, like, Matrix style. It's more that we use cell phones too often and social media. Let's extrapolate so instead we made ourselves into computers and we made ourselves into these super beings like we trained our bodies and minds to be superior so we wouldn't have to rely on technology and it's a fascinating concept and it's makes for beautiful cinema is how i feel even dune Mm -hmm. which i love is weird so yes so that that's where i jumped in on this uh, on the Duneverse. i got into the david lynch uh movie back in the 80s but of course i think i didn't see it until like I was like 10 or something mm-hmm. and very different from this film. Yes. <laughs> like very different uh, in the best way possible though. Yeah. But Lucas, since yeah. you, you read the books, uh, I know this is all this part one here is only the first third of the mm-hmm. books. Correct. Do you feel like it did some like good justice to the books? Definitely. My, so I will say that as a super fan of this series, this is the closest I've ever seen anybody capture the world of Dune. Like truly, like visually, th- thematically, 
um, you know, emotionally in many ways. Uh, granted, there's things that I loved about David Lynch's Dune that I think Lynch did better in some instances, but it's mostly because uh, uh, Denis Villeneuve was, was willing to sacrifice a lot of the peripheral characters because he wanted to squeeze it into a feature film. And that's one of my only, I'd say, complaints about this, this one is I want to see the extended cut because I've seen clips of scenes where, for example, like Gurney, who's played by Josh Brolin, who I thought was an odd casting choice, although I love him so much and he does a great mm-hmm. job. Because Gurney's supposed to be this like rock mountain of a man. He's like disgusting and burly, and he, but he plays the balisette, which is like, you know, musical instrument. And he's supposed to be like so poetic. He's singing all the way through the novels. So, like, yeah, he's a great character. And they, that it's such a character building scene to see him like playing the balisette. You see that he's like this actually like poetic soul as much as he's a warrior. And they had to cut that. I've, I saw shots of it. They cut it. There's scenes with Dr. Yui, who is also a great character, um, where you see his relationship with Jessica. They cut that out. Like all these little moments for peripheral characters were left on the cutting room floor because they just cared about Paul's journey. And I get it. Because if you're going to make this a feature film and not a TV series, like I wish it could have been, Although, granted, if it was a TV series, it would not have had that incredible budget to right. craft that world. So, you know, I, that's how I feel. I'm, like, torn, but at the same time, absolutely blown away. So with that budget, you see the special effects. But not, not only that, this is visually stunning. Yeah. D- to, to say nothing else, it is visually stunning. And but audibly like, stunning. The, the audio in this is superb. Yes. Yeah. So my, the thing I love the most about this film. Yeah. I'm just going to say it right now, was how sound was treated. The yes. music the music was done sp- superbly, but not only that, the sound design was amazing. It was on point. It was mm-hmm. it was dynamic. It was really soft at some spots, and it punched you. It was like punched you right in the eardrums, being like, hey, here we go. And it yeah. was great. Not only that, Christopher Nolan, take note. You can have <laughs> audible dialogue wow. while still wearing helmets and everything like that and it still feels immersive so take a note and copy this going can, forward can i tell you too i guess as far as sound is concerned mm-hmm. which i found very intriguing is how much they switched between like verbal dialogue then to sign language and yes. then to um like like a foreign language but with subtitles and it it, it would flip throughout the film but it seemed very seamless i mean it had you that i i would have to say like the soundtrack and the score and everything had you so encapsulated that you didn't even realize that it was switching between these different forms of communication and dialogue and i thought that was intriguing honestly i haven't seen that as well done like that before this movie should win every award for music and sound go like for this next award season i i haven't honestly Truly, honestly, and I'm, I'm saying this uh, from my audio background, I have yet to have heard, listened to a movie where it's been done so masterfully. And I actually suspect that the extra time they had for releasing this movie, they were able to go back and tweak all of that stuff. So Hans Zimmer, who has an incredibly impressive resume, you should go back and check out some of the stuff he's done. Like this is top tier of what he's capable of doing. And if you're interested, there's an interview with Hans Zimmer on Awards Radar that you should check out because uh, he goes into his career and everything. It's pretty remarkable. Um, mm-hmm. So, Bridget, story-wise, you mm-hmm. were saying the parallels to Star Trek and everything, but uh, was there anything that like was confusing to you that you kind of were like left like not sure what the heck was going on? 
and not to be this geek, but a parallels to Star Wars, not Star Trek, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did I say Star Trek? Yeah, yeah. you slipped. Yeah, you did. Sorry, yeah, I always did. revert it back to my favorite. to the best of us, bud. <laughs> to my it favorite happens, franchise. It happens. <laughs> well, okay. So I guess it would have to be a few different things. One, it's set in this like futuristic world, which is again like you know Star Wars, outer space. It's the future or past. Well, we don't Star really Wars know. is in the past. We don't this really know. Yeah, this is in the future. Long so, time ago. Long time ago. A galaxy away. far, far away. Right. Yeah. So again, obviously, the movie's called Dune. Sand. They're in a desert, which is you know like the opening of Star Wars and Tatooine. You know that's where we get mm-hmm. Luke Skywalker and Obi. The introduction of Obi Wan. So that's very similar. But when it came to the characters and what was like their plot of, you know, mining and spice trading and spice mining, which is a huge, huge, huge plot line, especially in the past decade in Star Wars, especially the the series, the television series. Um, there's just like many characters. So like for one, that emperor guy. Do you mean Baron Vladimir Hark- Harkonnen? Yeah, that weird, the weird, like, bald, really fat Stone guy. Skarsgård? Yep, right. yep, which I didn't realize it was him until they did a close-up shot, and I was like, oh my god, that's Stellan Skarsgård. Anyways, I was like, that's totally Jabba the Hutt, like, without a question in my mind. <laughs> yes. Uh, like, well, in, spot similar, on, Jabba the Hutt. Similarly to Jabba, Baron in the books is actually a little more charismatic, which I thought was an odd choice that they kind of made him more like uh, Colonel Kurtz. <sighs> Uh, but no. I do think what you're going to see is in part two, they will reveal more of his personality because you really didn't get too much of him. He was more like this evil presence lurking in the background. Yeah, right? it was very it was very minor, uh, I would have to say. Uh, but again, also like Javier Bardem, like I didn't even realize that was him right away. I Just loved how, him in this. Right. I didn't even realize it was him. And also, I didn't even look up the casting for this movie before I watched it. From trailers, I, I knew that uh, Timothy Chalamet was starring in it, Zendaya, um, and Oscar Isaac, and Rebecca Ferguson. But otherwise, I didn't really know anyone that was going to be in this. So I was pleasantly surprised to all of a sudden like keep seeing like these actors who, like I mean, like I love Josh Brolin in the past decade, I would have to say. My fandom for Josh Brolin is growing. Um but again, like Javier Bardem, I had no idea was in it. Dave Batista, uh, ah, again, yeah. just random. That is inspired <laughs> casting too, because uh, the uh, Fade—not Fade—that's his brother. Um, yeah, the Beast Raban uh, is is a really interesting character. He didn't get a lot of screen time. He will get more in this in this yeah. part two. I guarantee it. Um, he's one of the only characters in the book that actually is aware of how crazy deadly the Fremen are. And like what their storyline. So, but nobody ever trusts him. So it's funny. He's, he's thought of as this dumb brute. Uh, so yeah. I love that they got Dave Batista because he's similarly thought of as like this big dumb brute guy. Yeah. But if you ever read any interviews with him, he's a very like, you know, was it a sentimental and, and, and like intelligent guy. Yeah. So anyway, I'm, I would thought it was he was such good casting for that. Character. And then I would have to say I, the person I was probably most surprised, but also equally excited to see was uh, Jason Momoa. Uh, our so how do we Aquaman. feel about this? How do we feel okay. about Aquaman? Okay. I, I don't like Aquaman. him without a beard. He needs facial hair. Uh, he, I don't know what it is. I, I like I like the, the, the baby beard on him. I don't know. Let me tell you, I was so excited to see him in this film because I haven't seen a lot of films that he's in. Most, I mean, I've seen Aquaman the most. I mean, like I've watched that a lot, um, and I love him in that. I think he's phenomenal. Phenomenal. I'm very excited for Aquaman too. 
But so I was really excited to see that. And I really enjoyed his character in this, too. Uh, it was, he was well, just Duncan like, Idaho easily likable. Is supposed to be one of the greatest swordsmen in the entire galaxy. Right, which and again reminded me of Han Solo, you know, like the greatest pilot in the galaxy. Yep. That was my He's also get, for that gets one. a little drunk and parties too hard. And yes. but the, the thing that they did well is that he his relationship with Paul is super important for the entire series of the books. Mm-hmm. Every book from now on is like really like his character is one of the few ones that remains over and over again. And uh, so the fact that they actually gave a lot of screen time to him uh, and they, like I said, they sacrificed a lot of these other peripheral characters to establish that relationship was really a good choice. And honestly, like I've been reading online, everybody's like criticizing kind of the choice of Momoa for Duncan. And I'm like, you know what? He's good looking. He's charming. He looks like he kicks some butt. I was like, I don't understand why anybody has a problem. I'm here for it. And before, and honestly, just so I can move on from the Star Wars parallel bandwagon, like I think the only other thing, like Timothy Chalamet, I felt like right from the get go, I was like, this is like a Luke Skywalker character right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And then Josh Brolin was like his Obi Wan. And I, again, (laughs) it was just. It was just, yeah, in a way. Though, and there's like, a million it, other things that came up, and visually speaking, and just stuff that was going on. It's like, I mean, George Lucas was Star Wars. essentially <laughs> taking the hero's journey from Joseph Campbell, and yeah. and let's be honest, like Frank Herbert did very similarly. Like, so he didn't invent any of this stuff either. Um, but like, let's be real. There's a, some parallels are a little too close, and that's yeah. fine. Listen, everybody steals from everyone, so it's you it's know, it's fine. Both it's stories fine. are very unique in their own way. But um, uh, I, I really appreciated Timothy Chalamet because Paul is supposed to be like a young kid. He's supposed to be a teenager in it. And for some reason, Chalamet can play a teenager probably till he's like 40. Like, uh, how old is that Timothy, dude? Is he in his he's 20s? He's really good. He's, Timothy Chalamet is amazing. Yeah, and he, he plays a little bit bratty and a little bit like insecure, which Paul is in the beginning, like really mm-hmm. well. And I know that he's the right choice for when Paul, he's going to go through a change in the next one. So I'm like, I feel like Timothy Chalamet is going to really bring it. I'm excited you, that they cast him. We, I mean, have you guys seen um, The King that was on Netflix? I don't no. know if you guys have seen that. Uh, I mean, Timothy Chalamet has been in a lot in the past, like, two, three years alone, I would say. He, mm-hmm. I mean, he's really coming into his stardom. Uh, it reminds me of a lot of, like, uh, uh, Florence Pugh right now, just, like, mm-hmm. how she's up and coming and is just, like, nailing all these top roles. Timothy Chalamet, I would say, is very similar. But anyways, in The King on Netflix, I would say he plays sort of a similar role. But it's the idea, like, he's a teenager, but at the same time, he's also, like, playing a 40 year old man like it's kind of it's very strange and so i would say if you enjoyed his performance in this checking the king out on netflix is definitely worth your time and Mm -hmm. that has a phenomenal cast as well but again it's the same idea of how he's able to just like take on these supercharged roles and just nail them essentially (laughs) as a matter of fact florence Pugh and timothy chalamet star together in little women Greta Gerwig's version. Yes, they do, Cronsworth. Little Women is an excellent film. I think that's one of the best versions of, of Little Women, oh, Cronsworth. Oh, easily. I'm glad that you're also mm-hmm. a fan. I love Little Women. So what about the rest of the cast? Rebecca Ferguson, when I saw that they cast her for Jessica, I was like super excited because I, I, I was a fan of Dr. Sleep. I actually love not only um, a lot of Stephen King stuff, but that's uh, uh, Flanagan. Michael Flanagan directed that one, and it's a great sequel to The Shining. Mike Flanagan just did recently um, Midnight Mass that's on Netflix, but he, he did uh, The Haunting of Hill House. He did um, uh, Bly Manor. He also did uh, Hush, if you've ever seen that. He also mm-hmm. did 
Ouija 2, which is, uh, I seriously, I've been going on a Flanagan kick, and it's like, it's a really good horror film, and, make, and Ouija 1 is trash. So, like, yes, check out Flanagan's work. But also, Rebecca Ferguson is a really talented actress. There were some issues I had where, like, it seemed like the only scenes they left in with her were her, like, crying a lot. And I'm like, yeah. this Jessica I, character is a well, super I, strong character. And you yeah, get that. And as, I, felt as, that as, it, I felt that way, too, and I'm hoping she gets redeemed in part two. Because she hardcore, started yeah. off as a very strong character, and then it sort of teetered off by the end of the film exactly because what you were just saying i felt yeah. that she just seemed like very weak and feeble in a lot of moments um but again i was very excited to see her in this i loved her in the greatest showman but so norm you said you were impressed with the sound but like visually this was rock solid right like what did you feel like experiencing this it had a depth to it that i think i i feel like i don't see enough of um, when they're out in the desert at times, mm-hmm. you can see the vastness. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of times when uh, those scenes are treated, it's actually the exact opposite. They try making it feel smaller because it, it's trying to make you feel like claustrophobic in a way, like there's no way out. This showed you, no, this whole entire planet's like that. And the landscape, therefore, that they that they show, the depth and everything is spectacular. And it's mm-hmm. so crisp looking. Yeah. I, you know, I watch this at home. Mm-hmm. I didn't have time to go out to the theaters. Luckily, I have I have a, a very nice TV and a pretty good sound system to still be able to enjoy all this. But like, wow, the 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 depths that they go through not only not only in the light because like all all of the daylight desert scenes are still pretty bright, but also inside where it's really dark and and and, and dank. They do this really great contrast between the two. Yeah, and like it, when they're on like, uh, Seleucus Secondus. Or uh, no, Giddy Prime. I'm sorry, Giddy Prime is uh, the Harkonnens' home planet, which is a very dark and dirty planet. They like the richness of the of the and the texture of that planet was really impressive. Yeah, it it's so impressive. Like, look, we, we we talked about Game of Thrones a couple of weeks ago uh, and a couple of episodes ago, and we talked about how bad the, uh, the the battle at Winterfell against the Night King was, and you couldn't mm-hmm. see anything. This was just as dark. But you could see everything. Everything yeah. was—you could see all the textures and everything. It was beautiful. And I'll say the CGI, like this, is probably the best I've ever seen CGI mixed in with real footage that looks cinematic and, mm-hmm. like you said, had depth and texture. And it, I, I, there was at times where I was like, "Listen, I know those are not real spaceships. They didn't build the models like they used to. I mean, in no. Star Wars, they in the originals, they would build the right. models." I'm mm-hmm. like, I know those aren't real models and real spaceships, but damn, they look real. Like, I, I just, it was hard for me to yeah. tell where the photography began and the CGI ended, you know? And no, let me say, too, seamless. I watched this on my dinky little little small te- television in my room. <laughs> and le- let me tell you, the visuals were still just as stunning. And the soundtrack, I thought, was written still so well that it still mm-hmm. just, like, drew your attention in, like, right off the bat. So... I do plan on rewatching this. Either I'm gonna either one go to the theater if I have time, or two pop it into surround sound uh, mm-hmm. downstairs. But in my house, but I'm I, I oh god, it was so good. I really I really do want to hear it in a movie theater though. Like this is a yeah, movie I, that I, I really want to see also, up on the screen and hear it around me. I also watched it at home because I have relatives in town and I just couldn't didn't have time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is my theory on what's going to happen. Like the the reason they. They already uh, greenlit the second part is because 
I, I can guarantee you more people are going to go back to the theater to see Dune than most other films. I have a feeling it's going to be in the theater for the next couple months because you're going to have I so many that. people like us who are just going to go back and see it a second time and a third time. I'm essentially waiting for my family to leave so I can go to the theater to watch it. <laughs> and I'm going to buy an IMAX ticket. Get out. Like, I need to go kidding. see Dune now. <laughs> but no, otherwise, I mean, I thought it was awesome. But I mean, did you guys have some favorite moments that you got to hit on? And so this is going to be a little spoilery. Cue spoiler storm. It's a sand spoiler storm. (laughs) The sandworms spoiler storm. Um, Yeah, the sandworms, by the way, like everybody, the sandworm is the iconic, you know, character of Dune. Like that is seriously more than any other aspect of Dune. That is like Dune. (laughs) Mandalorian. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like anytime you see that in Mandalorian, you think, okay, that's Dune as like a fan of Dune. But um. They yeah. they look spectacular in this, like truly like what you envision when you read the the, the novels. And um, God, seeing them on the screen, that for me is like favorite moments was definitely when you really get the introduction of the sandworm when Paul and Jessica are fleeing in the desert and that sandworm's chasing them like in Tremors. Like, ooh, like that reveal of it, just the scale, it, it seemed enormous and it seemed real. Uh, so that was really exciting for me. And honestly, I loved, so for Jessica's character, I was getting a little critical, but her bickering with him in the, when she like snaps at him for screwing up the voice in the, mm-hmm. in the, in the ornithopter, like I, that was one of my favorite scenes in the, in the movie because of the tension in there, but also because of her relationship with Paul, where you see she's smacking him down a little bit because she doesn't want him to get so full of himself because he didn't do, he did not do a great job. They barely survived. And yeah. if he was actually trained and did a good job, it, it would have been easy. I so do I have to how, say that. She yeah. smacked his ass down. I really enjoyed the fact that it was a mother-son dynamic in mm-hmm. this film. I think that is a pairing that we often don't get in cinema. It doesn't follow the traditional trope that we see mm-hmm. in really any most franchises especially. So I was very I was very happy to see this and honestly um was not expecting I guess well, I don't want to spoil this. So anyways, anyways, I'm just going to I'm just going to say that I was pleasantly surprised to get a mother-son duo on screen for the majority well, of the film. <laughs> so many of my favorite scenes were with them, but also my other favorite scene was the breakfast table when she's like training him in the voice. That is not from the novels. That was oh. written by the, the screenwriters and and as a fan of the novels, I know every scene. I was so pleasantly surprised. It felt very natural. It felt like part of the world, mm-hmm. and I got to see a little intimate moment with them. And also his training that they talk about in the book, but you never actually get to witness. Um, and then also one of my favorite scenes that wasn't in the book was when Duke Leto gets the uh, charge of, of taking over Arrakis and spice mining, where you see the mm-hmm. Spacing Guild come up. It was like great to see that part of the world, of the universe. And um, I really like that scene. And you get Oscar Isaac barely has any lines in it, but he's just acting the hell out of that scene with his presence. Um, After, yeah, a- Oscar Isaac like stole whatever scene he was in in this film. And honestly, I wouldn't even say he had the biggest role and he didn't even have the most polished dialogue. I guess that I would have to say that. Yeah. But man, he, he carries a huge presence and I'm loving the beard. I really love the yeah. beard. I mean, Jason I did Momoa like so- gave Oscar Isaac his beard. That was the trade-off for this film. <laughs> yeah. They were like, uh, in the contract, Oscar Isaac, uh, if I he need to have good. facial hair, imposing. therefore Jason Momoa cannot. I This is for me. I, I prefer it the other way around still. <laughs> No, I enjoyed it. I liked it. <laughs> um, but did you catch all like the the iconography they were using with like the bull and the um, the, the bullfighting? So the idea mm-hmm. that like uh, you know 
Duke Leto is essentially like going into the ring with the bull. And if he makes a misstep, he'll be killed just like his father was killed by a bull, yeah. was gored yeah. by a bull. I, so it's really uh, interesting. Honestly, I have to say, though, for favorite moments, it would have to be when Javier Bardem first comes in and he has the meeting with Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, Jason Momoa. Yeah. They're all there because it was a very tense scene. But at the same time, it was the funniest it's scene funny, yeah. in the entire movie because they think that he's like, when Javier Bardem, his customs, and he, like, spits, and he says something, but that's, like, a part of his custom. And Jason Momoa's like, nope, it's okay, don't kill him. Like, this is this is what we're supposed to do. And I thought that was very funny because it was a very intense scene, but it was, like, the comedy was so subtle. But Well, everybody worked. was so formal in this movie up until that scene. You know, they're yeah. all, like, bowing and doing all these, like, different exactly. rituals. And then he comes in, spits on the table, and talks to them like they're equals. Whereas, right. you know... They're supposed to be royalty and all this, and you could tell he couldn't care less. They don't mean yeah. anything to him. Their titles don't mean anything to him, which is great for that character, for Stilgar. Mm-hmm. And Javier yeah. Bardem is just, damn, that guy is like, I love that he's not playing a villain because he's, you know, he always gets forced to play he psychos and weirdos. So yeah. him bringing that energy into like somebody who's not a bad guy is kind of nice. I know. Well, Norm, how about you? Did you have yeah. any favorite scenes or moments? Yeah. You know, um, this this is going back to the sound design because it did so well in this particular moment when Paul is in his room and he's looking at the hollow graphics about yeah. how to survive on Arachnus and all of a sudden that like hummingbird thing comes in and the way he like tries blending in with the holographic yeah. and then he's waiting for it to make a move and all that the sound design in that scene was on point the sound design and the music everything about it was so good i loved that scene not much happens other than you get this you get this really great auditory experience only to then realize that paul knows not only does he know what's going on but he's very well capable of taking care of himself and i loved that scene that was my favorite scene it's a a small scene but i love it it's so good um the other favorite scene I had was uh, probably when Oscar Isaacs, uh, they first go out to the desert to see the mining operation. or the It's not really mining when you're just like collecting it. Um, <laughs> so when, when they're there and Spice that whole harboring. Scene, yeah. <laughs> harvesting. It's just harvesting, man. You're just harvesting. sweeping stuff yeah. up and they separating. They are called spice, spice harvesters. So yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So that scene was also, I thought, really well done. Um, the acting in it is just amazing. And it, and it shows you the leader that he's trying to be in the movie. Yeah, and also, too, Damn the spice. I really thought Oscar Isaac was going to be a bad guy in this film. Like, I, I thought, like getting first getting into it, I thought that's what was going to happen. But then it was that scene where he's like, no, we need to rescue them. And it's like, it's like oh, oh, okay. <laughs> and, and he does this all in front of the auditor. Who he thinks like, okay, I'm going to show the auditor that I care about the people and she's going to go back and tell the emperor, hey, he cares about the people. Give him a break. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that scene, she's like, nah. Nah. No, but I think what is expected is you better harvest as much spice as possible. Keep the spice flowing. And he's saying, no, I'm going to let the spice go. I'm going to take care of my people, which Mm -hmm. in a way is even more scary for the emperor because the emperor is terrified that his popularity is going to make, you know, force him to become emperor anyway. Yeah. Which is great. All this is what I mean. There's so much political dynamics happening, but they don't beat you over the head with it. It just kind of unfolds as you're watching it. Um, 
which is one thing, a, a challenge of this film, uh, taking all that dense material and not trying to over-explain it and just letting it be in front of yeah. you. Um, I mean, all those scenes you're describing, I could go into the intimate details in the novels of why it was important. But truly, like what I loved about this pr- this presentation of it is that it was just this experience, thing to experience, which is, if you remember, like one of the quotes in this uh, in in this dune was that quote about it's it's something to be experienced right life is supposed to be experienced not supposed to be completely analyzed right and um that's one of the things that really was effective in this is the different visions paul have paul has so one of the things they kept in in this which is he's supposed to be seeing multiple futures right and he's not sure which one is true because it turns out he can manipulate which one will become true with his actions mm-hmm. and uh did you notice the key, the constant cutting back and forth to like war and bodies burning, mm-hmm. like piles of bodies on fire? Mm-hmm. Like, first of all, I I wish similar to the Iron Throne, like the body piles should have been 10 times as high because what he's worried about is literally the entire universe going to war because mm-hmm. of his actions. Right. And so like that weighing on him is supposed to be a big damn deal. Like he feels trapped in the corner, like the bullfighter, right? And he's like, what is the best option out of this? And unlike Hamlet, yeah. who doesn't act, he actually makes hard choices to either embrace his fate or not. And I love the, how they weave that in. And do you notice the, the point where Jameis, is, who's the guy that he gets into the fight with at the end, which, by the way, there's so many elements of 2001 A Space Odyssey visually that are layered over that. It's insane. Um, but when he gets into that fight at the end, he had that vision beforehand of the guy Jameis, who he ends up fighting as a mentor who's teaching him. Yes. So was that an, a, yeah. a future that could have happened or was the fact that he fights him, kills him and then ends up, be, you know, that's f- essentially one of his best teachers is it's the first man he kills yeah. and has to learn the price of, a, of the value of a human life. I mean, the layers of this movie that they just allow to happen that you're watching. I mean, you need to watch this one multiple times, especially if you haven't read the novels to really understand kind of what they're trying to say with every scene and all the character relations and everything. I mean, I will tell you, I really did enjoy this. I sincerely, I thought this was a really great film. I'm really disappointed in the lack of Zendaya in this film. They like yes. really hyped her up. And then I'm like, where's Zendaya? When is she going to talk? Like, I know they keep showing her, but well, they, like, they, when is she coming I think they put her in the beginning. I think they and put her in the beginning because like, they realized ugh. she doesn't have to show up until 10 minutes at the end. Yeah. Well, yeah. So the lack of Zendaya, that's definitely, that's what I like the least about Dune. But otherwise, I really enjoyed it. I mean, how about you guys? Is there anything you didn't like? Okay. When I watched this, there was no news of a part two coming out. So I was doing – they asked a tall leap of faith from fans on this. More so when I was watching this film and there was a ton of world building. Don't get me wrong. That is a good thing. But at the same time, with no news of a part two yet, that was a bad thing. It was a bold move. It actually bothered me a lot. After I was finished watching it, I said, okay – If by some chance the studio doesn't see that they should renew this and they don't renew this, I'm going to be so angry that I I would put it on top way above what happened with Game of Thrones. Way above. (laughs) So when I I was so into the world and then where it ended, I remember thinking ahead of time, like, how did Denis figure out how to, like, build a little, like, mini story arc, three-act structure, or at least for some kind of, like, cathartic ending? Because I'm like, if it ends where I think it's going to end... I've told people that's like ending on Empire Strikes Back. You're oh. ending on a huge cliffhanger. And I'm like, yeah. maybe he invented or did something that will help like make us feel like some closure. Nah, nothing. 
So I was similar to Norm. I was like, oh my God, if they don't green light this damn thing, like <laughs> we're going to have to do like a fan GoFundMe of $150 billion to like get them to actually film this. Like, yeah. One of the things that, again, I liked, I, I disliked most was the fact that they did this as a TV show, or sorry, as a movie and not a TV show, meant they had to leave out so much on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. So part of me is like, until they make the, uh, you know, the extended edition, like, I'm going to feel like this was the best he could have done in this format, but I'm really miss, I really want to see more. I want to see more of the world. I want to see sequels. I want to see part two. And I, you know, I'd like to see the extended cut because I feel like they, they really missed out on a lot of world and character building. They could have done even further if this was not a movie and said like a TV show or at least had more time because I could have sat there for six hours and been fine. Yeah. I, don't, I, I mean, it's like hard, I think, because I didn't know anything about Dune. So like this was very, like very much a blind area for me. Um and it, and it was definitely difficult to, like, not watch this and not think of Star Wars just because I'm so, like, intertwined in the Star Wars universe. So I, I don't know if that helped, if it helped at all, just because I kind of understood the concept. I don't, if I hadn't seen Star Wars and I just watched this blindly, I don't know if I would have ha- have enjoyed it so much because there's definitely a lot of confusing concepts and there's a lot of new characters and things like that. So if I wasn't used to that style of cinema, mm-hmm. I guess, I don't think I would have enjoyed it. So, but I don't know. I, I If I had to give this a rating, sincerely, I would mm-hmm. give it 7 out of 10 sandworms. Just okay. because I thought it was really good. But, I mean, I don't know. There, there's just, and there's a, now a part two. So it can only go up from here. Maybe if I watch it again in cinema, might go up to an 8 or 9. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah, I'm going to give it like a 5 out of 10 because it's only half a movie. So. <laughs> oh! If the part two is is, uh, completely great, I'll give it all a 10 out of 10 because it'll be my favorite thing in the world. But right now. Dang, I wasn't expecting that, but I I can see why. I I don't blame you, Lucas. I don't blame you. Uh, I'm going to go off my first instinct of when I did watch this, which was anger that, oh my God, (laughs) there's a chance this might not happen. I'm going to go lower than Lucas and give it a four out of 10 just because of that. But honestly, like if we're going to give it a grade though, it's a solid B plus, without a doubt. Um, oh, visually, yeah. audit, uh, visually and auditory wise, just alone puts it in an A plus category. Yeah, they I mean, they yeah. did a lot of story world building, uh, which at the at the end, if this was a standalone film, just doesn't pay off. So it brings it down a little bit for me. But again, this was so good. Like this is like a pleasure to the senses for sure. Yeah, I'm going to give it an A minus with the idea of being like, when I see part two, I might now rewatch this first one and be like, no, A plus mm-hmm. because it's just an unfinished piece of artwork that, you know, I'm like, yeah, they didn't really, it's incomplete. So it's hard to give it any grade. Like he turned in an incomplete assignment. So yeah. what do you do as a teacher? You say, bring back the full work. You're going to get an extension and you better wow me with this next one. Yeah. And you have the possibility. Was it Empire Strikes Back, an incomplete assignment? Correct. Empire mm-hmm. Strikes Back. And but we people, love it. Cronsworth, people say that it's the best one, but if they never made Return of the Jedi, would they say that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No one would ever go paint that, like give it a second glance. So yeah. I'm excited. I, I'm genuinely looking forward to seeing the part two of this film, which I wasn't yeah. expecting. So, and I'll tell you this news I read, an uh, interview with Denis Villeneuve, he said that not only does he want to do part two, he wants to do three movies because Dune Messiah, which is the this, this second book, is the, the completion of Paul's story. And 
Frank Herbert wrote Dune Messiah because so many people misunderstood what he was trying to say with Dune. He's like, no, I got to put a period at the end of this sentence. So he essentially made Dune Messiah to say, like, this is what I'm trying to this say. This what I'm doing. Yeah. And it's, it's really cool. And he's right. He even said, like, you do not get Paul's complete story unless you have Dune Messiah. And I really want to do it. So I have high hopes that not only will we get part two, but we're also going to get a third movie. That's my hope. Nice. Dune Messiah. And then Children of Dune. And then it'll never happen. But the TV, they should do a TV movie or a series of, of uh, God Emperor of Dune. And then Heretics of Dune will never be made. It's too odd. Chapter House of Dune. It gets too weird <laughs> sexual. And like, anyway. Oh, but. my God. All right. Well, on that note, <laughs> Lucas is like, I'm going to name out every single Dune piece of information here. But no, after no. that, it's Frank Herbert his, or his, his son uh, kept the series alive. And it's just not as good. But okay. All right. Um, that's it. That's all I have to say about Dune. Well, that's how we've been doing. I don't know. How you doing? <laughs> how you doing? <laughs> how you doing? I am a giant boo. Boo. Oh, yeah. And table's still broken. Oh, man. Table is still broken. Wow. Just like Cronsworth. Uh, <laughs> anywho's. Anywho's. Well, that was our coverage of Dune on HBO Max. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, while you're waiting for our next episode, be sure to subscribe to The Verse wherever you find your favorite podcast. And once you do, be a good person. Don't keep The Verse to yourself. Share it with a friend, a family member, or even a kind-looking stranger. Ooh, because The Verse is for everybody. How can we follow you then, Bridget, if we want to... Uh... You know, oh, if you're a kind stranger, if you're looking for me, I could be a kind looking stranger. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at RidgerBrogan16. Well, you can follow me, Lucas Longacre, at Luconian Logic on Instagram and on Twitter. And you can follow me, Norm Felker, on Twitter at random underscore white guy. And you can visit me, Cronsworth, on Twitter at Cronsworth. That's Cronsworth with a K on Twitter. And if you want to follow Emilia, it's I take off whenever I down well please at slacker.biz. And finally, there's our producer, Stephen Prusikowski, who last we saw was huffing down a lot of spice melange. Oh, I thought he got eaten by he... sandworm. Oh, weird. <laughs> I think one led to the other. Oh, okay. uh, he, can be, he can be found on Twitter and Letterboxd as at Filmsnork. Nice. Oh, there's our music. Thanks for listening. Uh, send in those questions and comments on our Twitter page, and we'll see you next time in The Verse. The Verse is presented by ScreenRadar.com and produced by Stephen Kuzakowski. Good evening. I'm Cronsworth, and welcome to another edition of 60 Seconds. Okay, more like 360 seconds. But who's counting? Get off my back. My question tonight is, what was your favorite Halloween costume as a child? I'll start with Lucas. What is my favorite Halloween costume as a kid? That's what I said. Well, Cronsworth, I don't have a favorite costume per se, but I have a funny story. My friends Andrew, Adam, and I were supposed to dress up as the Three Stooges, but Adam got sick on the day of Halloween, so it was just... Mo and Curly going door-to-door -door for candy. We literally looked like a couple of kids dressed as old dudes. It was embarrassing and sad, but we did get a lot of candy. Maybe we could have had Cronsworth with us, and he could have been our Larry. 
I think you'd make a good Larry Crownsworth. That truly is a funny story. Did you hear me laughing? Nor did I. But I do like the offer, although I would have chosen to go as Shemp, or everybody's favorite stooge, Joe Besser. Toodaloo. Emilia, what was your favorite Halloween costume as a child? Hmm. Okay, favorite Halloween costume as a kid. That's kind of a fun question. Oh, yes. And where in the world have you been? Wait, what do you mean, where have I been? Where, where have I... I've been here. I've been... I've been here the whole time, obviously. Odd. It sounds like someone forgot about her own note. But let's move on. Moving on. So, favorite Halloween costume as a kid. I... Oh, so in high school, I was a... I dressed up as a Dalek with um, my best friend... And we made the costumes completely on our own. Um, and it was awesome. We had a lot of, it was a lot of hot glue. <laughs> we got these like gold dresses and we got a bunch of, um, a lot of styrofoam was involved, a lot of like styrofoam spheres. So we hot glued them on <laughs> for the bottom of the, of the costume. And then we got like these little sink plungers Ooh, and plungers. we like stole the beaters off of her mom's <laughs> electric mixer. <laughs> oh, her poor mom raising a thief. And we just held them, and we had construction hats, uh, construction hats that we that we like spray painted, golds, and we glued gold spray painted Dixie cups on top. Um, it was excellent. It was. It's probably the best, the most high effort costume I've ever done. So yeah, yeah, I would challenge anyone to top that, and if they can, they will be exterminated. I kind of like the sound of that. Get it, Cronsworth? It's like. Like you're a robot, so mm. you know, you like you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I have no idea. So let me just slip out this door and goodbye. Next up, Bridget. What was your favorite costume as a child? Well, KW, my favorite costume. It was when I was a kid. I must have been in like third or fourth grade, and it was just a really cheesy, you know basic running-in-the-mill costumes from Party City or something like that. The costume was called Misbehaved, so of course it was a pun, and I was in a striped, pink, black-and-white striped prison outfit that had, like, a prisoner name tag on it saying Misbehaved, and it had, like, chains that I would wear around my wrists, and I don't know why, but when I wore that outfit, I felt like such a baddie, you know, because I'm, like, a goody two-shoes, so... In that, in that year, that third grade costume, I felt like I was the most powerful woman in the third grade in America. And that's why it was my favorite Halloween costume. You're a true rebel and a wannabe convict. And all that from Party City. Incredible. Okay, Norm, you're up. Yo, Cronsworth, what's up? Question, what was your favorite Halloween costume as a child? Oh. First off, you have to realize, I grew up during the 80s. Yes, we know. Halloween costumes look very different than what they do now. They had they were like these vacuum-formed hard plastic masks that had like two holes where the nose was. Like really small ones too. Uh, barely had slices out for the eyes so you can see through. And a little tiny slice for the mouth. So, and they were extremely uncomfortable and what's worse is they would give you this like 
basically like an apron or like a poncho that went over your like jacket and stuff like that. It would have like the emblem of whatever superhero or like if you were being rainbow bright or anything like that, it would have like the outfit just on one side. It was not the best time for Halloween costumes. I can imagine you as rainbow bright. Yuck. But I also did grow up during the 90s. This one Halloween, I got this costume where it had like inflatable shoulder pads. And basically what you did was you inflated this thing, you put it on your shoulders, and then you put this big giant shirt over it and it made you look like you had no head. And I thought that was really cool, especially because I had this, um, this old plastic skull that because of uh, living down in my, it living in my basement made it look like really weathered and creepy. So I got to like carry that thing around with it and it actually scared like a bunch of people. Uh, I remember a bunch of uh, kids being afraid of it. So I think that was probably my favorite Halloween costume. Hmm. Interesting. So you like scaring children. Maybe we should move on. Wait a second. Have you dressed up for Halloween? Of course I have. Plenty of times. Oh, well, what was your favorite costume? Well, that's easy. I was a toaster and a darn good one. Oh, that's great. And actually, it's making me hungry. Wait a minute. Where are you going? (laughs) I'll be right back. I'm going to go grab a bagel for you to toast for me. Just don't burn it. Oh, okay. No problem, Norm. Go get your bagel. Glad to help you. Just wait till he sees what slot I put that bagel in. 